Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. Hope you are doing well. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. We are excited and thrilled that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, and I'd love a chance to connect. So if you could let me know that you're here, a couple different ways. One, you can just text the word welcome to that number that you see right there. Just text welcome to that number, or uh, we have our welcome table right out here as you go back into the hallway. We've got some cards there. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, leaving those cards right there on the table. Uh, again, this gives me a chance to follow up and let you know how much we appreciate your visit. And uh, before we get started, I've got a couple of announcements for you. Uh, just a reminder, as we've been letting you know, our holiday service schedule uh, so this coming Saturday is Christmas Eve, and we're going to gather uh, on Christmas Eve right here like we do every Sunday. We're going to gather on Christmas Eve, 10 a.m., to celebrate Jesus and his coming and his birth. I hope you can join us for that service. We do a special time of worship um, and just celebrating what this season actually is all about, and that's Jesus Christ. So uh, if you could join us Christmas Eve morning at 10 a.m., right here in this room. And then uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day are on Sundays. So as a way to uh, give our volunteers who make this whole thing happen week in and week out some, some needed rest and family time, we're going to be online, gathering online on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So again, check your email. I'll send you all the links for those. Join us online 10 a.m. on those two Sundays. And then we'll be back here in person on Sunday January 8th, ringing in the new year. So if you uh, have any questions about that, let me know. Keep an eye on your email. If you don't get our email updates, let me know. I'll make sure you are added into the list of that. And then also, um, we are organizing a work day for our church on Saturday, January 14th. So if you could uh, help us out, again, that'll be coming up in the emails, so keep an eye on that. But we've got, if you guys remember, uh, we used to gather in modulars. I know it's been a while, but if you can remember that far back, we used to gather in modulars, those got taken away. There's some work that we had to do to get those separated from the deck, and uh, there's still some wood and some stuff that needs to get cleaned up uh, to not have it be an eyesore in our neighborhood. So uh, again, keep an eye on your emails, circle that date, Saturday January 14th, uh, we're going to organize a work day up there uh, to help clean up the property. So again, keep an eye on your email. And all right, so we're going we're gonna to continue on in our series through the book of Acts. We'll pick up where we left off last week, which was halfway through chapter 25, and we're going to carry it all the way to the end of chapter 26. And, and after today, uh, we've got two more chapters in the book of Acts, which means two more sermons, and then we are done with the book of Acts. Now, it's been a long journey. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Acts. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I know it's, it's cool to end something and look forward to the next thing, but I hope you have enjoyed your time in Acts. So uh, for those two online services, we're going to take a break from Acts. We'll pick up Acts back in January, on January 8th, and we'll finish it out those next two weeks. But uh, again, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which we're, where we saw last week was Paul standing trial two times before two Roman governors, Felix and then the new governor, Festus. And he stood before them, gave his defense. And as we talked about, his trials were full of lies and false accusations from the Jewish people. Uh, and we saw Paul stand firm and remain faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of all of those false accusations and lies. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off at the end of chapter, or where we left off at the end of verse 12 in chapter 25, Paul appeals. He uses his, his Roman citizen right to appeal to Caesar. So now Paul is going to remain in custody until they can get him to Rome where he will stand trial before the emperor. So like I said, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 25. And as you're getting ready for that, um, I don't know about you guys, but when I purchase something, I like to do my research. I don't know if some of you guys are like me, you like to do your research. Part of the research as I'm looking up, you know, I, I, if I'm going to spend money on something, I want to make sure I'm getting a good quality product, right? So I like to do my research, like to take my time and make sure I'm getting what I want. And part of that process for me is, is reading online reviews. Anybody read some online reviews? Uh, I do that all the time. So I'll, I'll look at reviews, I'll read it. It's just nice to know and hear from somebody who actually has experience with the product. Like, it's nice to know, oh, this worked, this didn't, here's our pros, here's some cons, or hey, this is just total garbage, don't waste your money, just throw it away, this is awful, don't buy it. Like, it's nice to have that. But one of the things about reviews that really frustrates me that I've noticed 
is there are people who will review something that haven't even used it yet. Like, that's not helpful at all. Like, if I'm on Amazon, and I'm like, five stars, I'm like, ooh, here's a five-star review. It's like, five stars, haven't used it yet, but the box came. I'm like, okay, the box came. Way to go, Amazon. You did what you're supposed to do. Like, I don't, I don't care about the box. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know if it got delivered to you. It's like, five stars, got delivered on time. I'm like, okay, that, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help me at all. It's like, five stars, looks great. I'm like, I can, I can see the picture. I know what it looks like. I don't need your comment on how it looks. I want to know what it looks like. Haven't used it yet, but it's awesome. I'm like, no, you can't, you can't say that. You can't speak to something if you don't have actual experience. So it's, it's very frustrating for me. So obviously you guys know that I'm, I'm worked up about this, right? So it, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated by these things because like, you're speaking to something that you don't actually have any knowledge of, and that's not helpful. You can't speak to something if you don't have experience or knowledge with that product, right? And what we see in our passage today is Paul shows us the importance of speaking to our experience and our lives with Jesus. So let's go ahead and dig into our passage. Acts 25, starting in verse 13, it says this. Several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked uh, that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. The next day, I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss and a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go on to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him, therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable for me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Okay, so let's, let's pause there. What's going on here? So again, Festus is the governor over this region, over Judea. He's the guy in charge of this area. Paul is in his custody, he has to stand before this man, and then he gets a visit from King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. So King Agrippa was kind of had the, the pseudo title of king over the Jews. So King Agrippa is in the line of Herod, if you remember that, we talked about this in Acts chapter 12, the, all the different Herods in the Bible, they're all related. And, and this guy, Agrippa, is the son of King Herod from Acts chapter 12. If you remember Acts chapter 12, King Herod was the one who put the apostle James to death, the first apostle murdered for his faith in Scripture. And then we see that God dealt with King Herod later on and, and put him to death in this crazy and wild way in this exact city, in Caesarea. So that's Agrippa's dad, and Bernice is Agrippa's sister. Um, so that's what's going on. So he was put in charge. The, the Herods were all put in charge over different areas by the Romans. And they're Jewish by descent, so they were kind of looked at as the Jewish liaison between the Jews and the Romans, the, the Herods, and, the, and these guys that were put in charge over this area were kind of seeing, hey, you, you get an understanding of the Jewish people and let us know what's going on and kind of help interpret and help us understand the Jewish people. So that's why he's kind of given the title king of the Jews. So that's what's going on here. He's not really a king. He's very similar to Festus. So he comes with his sister to kind of give homage to the new governor, and that's when he's like, hey, since you're here, I've got this Jewish guy that I don't know what to do with, so can you help me out? And that's where we, we come to chapter 26. Paul is now standing before Agrippa and Bernice and 
Governor Festus and this whole military kind of command going on. So this is what happens now, chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All of the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. Verse 12, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, let me pause there because goads is a weird word, right? Goad is kind of like a, uh, like a, a modern-day cattle prod. It's kind of what the goad was. So it was kind of a, a stick that they would use to, to get horses or, or livestock to go in the direction that they wanted it to go. So what Jesus is saying here when he's like, hey, why are you kicking against the goads? He's saying, why, why are you going against me? Paul, stop fighting me. Stop fighting me. That's what he's telling them here. And Paul does. Verse 15, I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much studying is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I am speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, Paul replied, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king and the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, so in chapter 26, Paul gives his defense one more time. Now, this is the fourth and the last trial that we see in the book of Acts. So this ends our, our trial phase that we've been in for a few weeks here. So this, this is the last trial, and he's, he's going to have one more. He's going to stand before Caesar, but we don't have that recorded for us in Acts. So this is the last one. 
And as we've seen from Paul, anytime he gets this opportunity to stand before people and speak, what's he doing? He's using it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And here in Acts 26, the way he does it is by sharing his story of how Jesus changed his life. Now, in, in church circles, in our, in our Christian language, we, we call that what? A personal testimony, right? He, he shared his personal testimony, that time in your life where you put your faith in Jesus. Well, I call that your Jesus story, your Jesus story. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, we all have a Jesus story. We all have a Jesus story. And the main thing that we learn from Paul here in this passage, and really what we've seen throughout his ministry, and if there's only one thing you get from me today, it's this. The one thing that we learn from Paul here is that our Jesus story is meant to be shared. Our Jesus story is meant to be shared. It's meant to be told. It's meant to be shared with others. And look, I think it's really interesting that this is, this is Paul's primary method of evangelism especially that we've seen here in the last few chapters, when Paul is sharing the gospel, he's really sharing how Jesus changed his life. That's what he's doing. I mean, he's not, he's not digging into the finer points of theology like we see him doing in his letter to the Romans, right? You read Romans, it's like, man, this, like, this dude's brilliant. Like, we're just digging in deep here. Like, we are diving into the deep end. Well, Paul's not doing that. He's not digging into the finer points of theology and doctrine. No, he's just, he's just sharing, here's how Jesus changed my life. Here's what Jesus did in my life. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 1 where we saw Jesus say, you are to be my witness? What's a witness? A witness is just somebody who shares what they've seen, shares what they know to be true. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened in my life. Here's what I know to be true. That's all a witness does. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. When we talk about sharing the gospel, sharing our faith, this is what we're talking about. It's sharing your Jesus story. Sharing your knowledge, your truth, your experience with Jesus. Here's what Jesus did in my life. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to look at Paul's way of sharing his story and see what we can learn from that to hopefully help us grow in sharing our story. Two things first, real quick, before we get going. One, I think and I hope that this, this should help us know what to say when we talk about sharing the gospel. I know typically when we talk about sharing the gospel, a lot of fear prevents us from actually doing that. I think one of those fears is just like actually getting up the courage to, to just start that conversation. It's like, I don't, I don't even know what to do. How do I get into that? Like, what, I don't, I don't, it just freezes us up. So we don't even know, like we're scared to even get into that conversation. And then the second level of fear that I hear a lot is like, okay, well, I start that conversation and then what do I say? What do I do? What if they start asking me all these questions that I don't know the answer to? It's like, hey, you're a Christian. There's all this evil in the world. How do you explain that? I don't know. Theologians for centuries have tried to wrestle with that. No, nobody knows. Like it's, like, so, so we just work this up in our mind like, man, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer the questions. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's okay to say I don't know. What Jesus wants us to focus on is being his witness. It's saying, hey, hey I don't know what, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. But what I do know is Jesus changed my life, and here's, here's what he's done. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. So hopefully this helps us know what to say. We're just supposed to share our story. That's all we're supposed to say. And then the other thing I want to say before we dig into this is every story is important. I mean, I'm sure, like me, you, you've heard some incredible stories, some incredible testimonies of God rescuing people just out of the depths. And it's like, man, that's powerful. Whoa. And it's just like, wow, that's awesome, right? You hear some of these stories. And then some of you maybe are like me, where it's like, hey, I grew up in church, and I got saved at an early age. Like, I got saved at the age of 11. My wife got saved when she was nine. Like, some of you are like, I got saved at five when I was at VBS. Like, some of you might think, man, I got saved early, and I grew up in church, and I don't have this, like, radical, crazy story to tell. My, my story's a little boring. And I hate hearing that. Like, no, there's no such thing as a boring Jesus story. It's never dull. It's never boring. I remember when I was doing student ministry at a camp one time. We had the students gather around. They were sharing their testimonies. And I was just kind of sitting back listening. And one of the kids started and he goes, man, yeah, my story's not that exciting. I got saved in early. I was like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. There's no such thing as a boring story. There's no such thing as, man, my, my story's not exciting. Because here's what the truth is. Every single Jesus story represents a changed life. And that's awesome. 
That's incredible. That's amazing. That's a miracle. So there's no such thing as a boring story. Okay, so let's dig into this. In our passage today, we see Paul kind of show us three parts to sharing our story. He shows us uh, our life before Christ, a changed life by Christ, and my life with Christ. So three parts, my life before Christ, my life changed with Christ, and my life with Christ. So first one up, life before Christ. Look again at how, how Paul describes his life before Christ. And we've seen him do this before, right? Like this isn't the only instance that we see him tell this story, but he, he tells us, this is verses four through 11. I'm not gonna read all that of chapter 26, but uh, he talks about how he, how he grew up in, in Jerusalem, right? He was taught at an early age all the things about Judaism. He, he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was a Pharisee. I mean, like this guy was dedicated to the Jewish religion, right? Like he was all about Judaism, trying to live a faithful Jewish lifestyle to the point where when this new thing came along, the church and these Christians and Jesus and being raised from the dead, he was like, man, you guys, you guys are, are an enemy that I need to fight. And he was opposed to the church. He was opposed to Jesus, fighting it every step of the way. Or he even says he, he fought it even to foreign cities, and he loved arresting Christians. And, and when they were put to death, he was there supporting it. He even says in his own word, he was terribly enraged at them. That was Paul's life before Christ. And even though he was a faithful Jew, a strict adherence to the Jewish system and law and all of this, he checked all the boxes. Even though he was a faithful Jew, he was God's enemy. He was God's enemy. He was opposing God every step of the way because he was a sinner. And that's exactly how the Bible describes us before Christ. We are sinners. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 puts it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. I mean, just look at that language. We, we're, we're sinners. And not just sinners, we are dead in our trespasses. What that means is, is not that, that all I do is sin, right? There's a lot of non-Christians doing some incredible, good, altruistic, compassionate, loving things in the world. But when it says that we're dead in our trespasses, it means there's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm dead in my sins. I am condemned. And that's a, that's a willful choice, right? I, I choose my sin. I chase after my sin. I want my sin. God says, hey, here I am. And I go, no, thanks. I'll pass. I want my sin. That's what it means to be dead in our trespasses. And not just do we willfully choose sin. It says here that, that in our nature, we are children under wrath. In our nature, we are sinners. What that means is we come out of the womb sinners. And if you've ever been around little kids or you have little kids, you know you don't have to teach them how to sin. They just know it. And man, I've, this, it started happening this week, man. Our sweet, our sweet little Mila, our last one, our sweet little baby girl is starting to get into that toddler phase. She'll be two in February and man, she is just off the chain right now. And what she started doing this week, oh, I'm not prepared for this. What she started doing this week, she started lying. She started lying. She did something. I forgot even what she did, but she, well, she did something. I was like, Milo, don't do that. And she pointed to her sister, Livy, who she calls Yeye. She said, Yeye, Yeye. I'm like, I, I saw you. Livy didn't do that. And then later in the week, she blamed something on the dog. I was like, Milo, did you do that? She's like, Winnie, Winnie. I'm like, no, the dog didn't do that. You did that. She's not even two. Like, you don't have to teach us. We don't have to learn how to sin. We just know it because by nature, we're children under wrath. That's our lives before Christ. Romans 6 tells us that we're slaves to our sin. Ephesians 4 tells us that, that, we're, that we're in darkness. We're ignorant and our hearts are hard. Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 calls us sheep without a shepherd. And then again in Luke 19, he says that we're lost. Apart from Jesus, we are lost. Romans 1 tells us that we, we are people who have rejected the clear truth of God. Again, we, we see God's truth. He's revealed it to us, and we say, no thanks, don't want that. I want my sin. I'd rather have my sin. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 calls us blind. The entire book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is all about how our lives are nothing. They're empty. They're vapor without Jesus. That's who we are apart from Christ. And just like Paul, no matter how many good things we've done, no matter how much we try to do what's right in this world, no matter how much we strive on our own, without Jesus, apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. We are sinners. We are far from God. We reject God, and we are fully, fully deserving of God's wrath and punishment because of our sins. Look, here's the truth, church, and we don't like talking about this, but this is the reality. God would be perfectly loving, holy, righteous, and good if he held us accountable for our sins for all of eternity. He does not have to save us. He could easily leave us in our sins, and he would be right in doing so. But that's why the gospel is awesome, because God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't leave us where we are. And that's what brings us to our second point. So we see our life before Christ, and now we see a life changed by Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. Paul's life as an active enemy of God, going against God in every way he could, gets radically saved. And, and, and I want to read his account again in chapter 26, starting in verse 12. He says, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances, again, with the intent to arrest, persecute, and kill Christians. I was on my way to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while I was on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. And we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our lives are radically changed forever. They're changed forever. Paul's life in this moment was changed forever. And all of us who would claim the name of Jesus, all of us who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I put my faith in Jesus, have a moment like this. We have a moment where we go from not believing to believing. We go from not having faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus. There, there's a moment when it all changes. And some of us, some of us are like Paul. Paul's moment was, was clear as day, right? Paul's moment, like he knew, man, that it, was, it was this day at this time, midday, noon. It was this time on this day, on my way to Damascus, my life changed forever. I met Jesus that day. And it was radical change for Paul. It was clear. No doubt, right? He knew that was the moment. Some of us know the moment, man. We know it's like it was this day, I was this old, this is what was going on that day, this is what I said, this is the weather that day. Like we know all the details because it was a radical, clear benchmark. It was just a moment in the, in the ground. Like we stuck or stick, like this is a change for me. And it's clear. So some of us are like Paul. And some of you maybe are more like what I say Peter. Some of us are more like Peter. My question always is, when did Peter get saved? When did the apostle Peter get saved? I, I don't know. I'd love to know that. Because we see in Matthew 16, he proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, right? Like maybe it's then. Like Jesus is like, hey, on this rock, you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Well, then just a few verses later, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, about that crucifixion thing? No, don't do that. And then Jesus calls him Satan. So I don't know. You go from proclaiming Jesus to now you're being called Satan. I don't know if that's a salvation moment. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not sure. But then we continue on with Peter's story, and he seems dedicated to Jesus, but then in his trial, Jesus gets arrested, and what's Peter doing? He's denying Jesus, and he's cussing out a little girl who's like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He's like, no, get out of here. Of course I'm not. 
Well, and then he's restored by Jesus at the end of John. Maybe Was it then when Jesus was like, hey, feed my sheep, feed my sheep? Like, maybe it was then. I don't know. And then we see Peter, like this scared guy who's cussing out a little girl. And now we see him at Pentecost just a, a couple of weeks later in Acts chapter 2. And he's boldly proclaiming Jesus. Like, at some point in Peter's life there, there was a change. We're not given a clear example of when that happened, but we know that it did. So for some of us, maybe it's, it's not a, man, it was this day, this time, I know the exact details. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit more gradual. And I just want you to know, like, that, that's okay. That's okay to feel that way. I can't tell you the exact day that I put my faith in Jesus. I know it was sometime when I was in sixth grade in January. I was 11 years old. But I don't know, at that point, man, it, someday around then, like, that, things changed for me. Things changed. Can I tell you the exact day? No, I have no idea what the exact day was, y'all. I barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday, all right? I can't tell you the exact day. But that's okay. Some of us have a little bit more of a gradual story. I remember um, early on at the last church I was at when we planted, we had a, a guy start coming. He had made some friends at his work uh, with, with some guys who were coming to our church, and he was hardcore atheist, hardcore atheist. But these guys, man, they, they invited him to church, and he started coming, and what they would do is he would come, and they'd, they'd all go out to lunch afterwards and just talk and ask questions. And he was asking questions, he was learning, he was kind of engaging, but he was still an atheist. He would say he was an atheist. But at one point, I remember them telling me this, they were like, uh, man, at one point at this lunch, man, we were talking, and at some point he just goes, yeah, I think I, think I believe now. I think I believe. Like, when, when did that happen? Like, we don't know, but it, it was a gradual belief. I remember another time I was doing a counseling with this couple, and I always, anytime I was doing counseling, I, I would always like, figure out, okay, where do you stand with Jesus? What's your Jesus story? Like, we dig into those details. And it was clear, man, there was the, the husband in this, in this family, like, there, I had no doubt, like, this guy is not a believer, does not know Jesus. But man, as we met, as he kept coming to our church, as he got involved in some of the things we had going on, I remember getting a call from a friend of his. He called me up. He's like, hey, man, you, you, you know, Chris, you guys have been meeting. I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you remember you told me you didn't think he was a believer? I was like, yeah, things changed now. He, he believes. He's a Christian now. I was like, well, that's awesome. Praise God for that. Like, it's, I don't know what the day was. I don't know if Chris knows what the day was. But at some point, things changed. So some of us have a very stark, clear moment. Some of us, it's a little more gradual. I just want you to know, the important thing is not that you know the day and time and all the circumstances. The important thing is you know there was a moment where I went from not believing to believing. I went from no faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus. That's what matters. And I just want to look, what does the Bible say happens when we, when we put our faith in Jesus and he changes our lives? I, I love uh, verse 18 here of chapter 26. I think it's a great summary of the gospel. It says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What happens when we put our faith in Jesus? And our eyes are opened. Our eyes are open. No longer are we blind. Now we can see. No longer are we in darkness. We are in the light of Christ. No longer are we in the kingdom of Satan. We are in the kingdom of God. And he says that, that also our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. No longer are we under wrath and condemnation and judgment because our sins are forgiven. We are forgiven. No longer under wrath. No longer under your or sins are forgiven. And then we're given a share. I love that he says that we're given a share, which means that, that we're welcomed into the family of God. We're welcomed into the family of God. That's a beautiful thing about the gospel. We're brought into God's family. And look, the New Testament speaks to us. I just want to highlight some things. Romans 10, 13 tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're saved. We talk about that a lot. We, we're, we're, we're saved. We have salvation in Jesus. We're saved from our sins, we're saved from the wrath and punishment that's due our sins. Uh, Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says that our sins are forgiven, all our sins, right? Past, present, future sins, all forgiven by Jesus. The slate is wiped clean. That debt, that sin, debt that we store up against God, it's gone, gone forever. No longer held against us. Romans three twenty four says that we are justified, which means we are now in a position of holiness and righteousness before God. We're justified. Ephesians 1.7 says that we are redeemed. We're set free from our sins, from the curse of sin, from the punishment of sins. Galatians 4.5 says that we are adopted into God's family. We used to be children of Satan. Now we're God's children, right? We are God's sons and daughters. Romans 6.23 says that we are given the gift of eternal life. We have eternal life with Jesus promised to us. 
1 John 5, 12 through 13 says that one of the benefits of our salvation is that we have assurance of our salvation. God doesn't want us going around living life like, oh, I wonder if I'm saved. Did I lose my salvation? Like, that's not the point. No, we're given assurance or to know that we're saved. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that we are in Christ. And that's one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ. It means that we are unified with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12.13, not only are we unified with Jesus, we are unified in his body, the church. We are connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. Acts 2.38 says when we put our faith in Jesus and we trust in Jesus, we're given the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit. And look, I could, keep, I could go on and on and on about all the things that happen when we put our faith in Jesus. God gives us so many blessings when we put our faith in him. Our lives are forever changed by Jesus. And I love how Ephesians one summarizes this. It's a long passage, but I want to read it all for us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says this, speaking of the blessings of salvation. It says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good, uh, the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring, bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. How awesome is that? How good is our God to save us and not just save us, but just lavish these blessings and grace upon grace in our lives. On that road to Damascus, everything changed for Paul. His life was forever, his story was forever changed by Jesus and this is what he shares with the world. And if we've put our faith in Jesus, our lives have been changed. Our story has been changed. And that's what we are to share. The world needs to hear your story. So we see our life before Christ. We see life changed by Christ. And the third thing that we learn from Paul here about sharing our story is we talk about life with Christ. So Paul describes his life with Christ in verses 19 through 23. He starts out saying, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand to testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul says that he was obedient to God's call. He was obedient to God's call. He, he stopped kicking against the goat, right? He stopped fighting God. He relented, and he trusted in Jesus, and he followed him. He gave his life to Jesus, and he dedicated his life to telling everybody everywhere about Jesus. See, Jesus, Jesus doesn't save us to just leave us where we are, right? He doesn't save us and say, hey, now that I've saved you, just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep living life the way that you want to live life. It's totally fine. Nothing has to change. It's just your spiritual state changes. That's it. Don't just keep doing whatever you're doing. Like, that's not how it works. That's not what Jesus does. When Jesus saves us, he doesn't save us just to have us go back to our old life. Salvation is not this 
get out of hell free card, right? It's not like, oh man, I can live however I want to live because I walked that aisle, I prayed that prayer, I, I did that thing at youth camp where I nailed something to a cross or I burned something in a, you guys know what I'm talking about, you guys all did that, don't lie. You can't just say, well, I, I did this thing when I was little, so now I, you know, I, I, I'm good. Sure, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I have faith. doesn't matter how I live. I can keep doing whatever I want to do. That, that's, that's not how it works. When Jesus saves us, again, he changes everything, including how we live our lives going forward. Our lives are not the same. They're not to look like our old life anymore. They're to look like Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says that our lives should be marked by works worthy of repentance. He says, man, if you've really repented, if you've really trusted in Jesus, your life should look like Jesus. Our lives should look like the one who saved us, right? If we've put our faith in Jesus, if we're following Jesus, our life should look like Jesus. Is that always perfect? No. Is it always seamless? No, of course not. But, but over the course of time, our, our lives should, should look more and more like Jesus as we go on. This is how the Bible describes our life. Luke 9, 23, I read this verse a lot because I love it. It says that we are to follow Jesus, and, and that means that we deny ourselves and we pick up our cross daily. That, that's what it means to follow Jesus. We give him everything. He gets it all. Our life's fully devoted to him. Galatians 5, 16 says that we walk in the spirit. We don't walk in the flesh anymore. We don't walk in the sins anymore. We walk in the spirit. We follow the spirit. Colossians 3, 5 through 17 shows us what that looks like, right? This, this process of what theologians call sanctification. Sanctification means that, that we are, are, are growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. This process of becoming more like Christ in our lives. That's sanctification. It says the way we do that is we put to death our sin and we put on the characteristics and the things of Jesus. We say no to sin and yes to Jesus, right? Like that's what it means to follow him. Matthew 22 says that the two greatest things that we can do with our life is love God with everything and love other people as much as we love ourselves. Those are the two greatest commandments to follow. John 15 says that we are to bear fruit. Galatians 5 tells us that that fruit is supposed to be the fruit of the Spirit. Things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and Acts 1, 8 make it clear that part of following Jesus means to make disciples, to be his witness. So I can, if I can summarize it, what we see from Scripture, what we see from Paul is our lives with Christ are to be one of growth and one of mission. Our lives are to be marked by growth and mission. We are to grow in our faith. Right? We're not supposed to stay where we're at. We're not just supposed to stay stagnant. Our lives should look different. Sometimes it's, it's small steps, right? Sometimes it's a few steps forward and then a bunch of steps backward just to take a few more steps forward, right? Like sometimes it, it's a little difficult. It takes a little bit of time. Sometimes it's slow. But when we zoom out over our lives, what we should see is this progress of becoming more and more like Jesus, our lives should be one of growth. We should be growing in our faith and in our love and in our knowledge of Jesus. We should be growing in our love and service to others. We should be growing in our generosity and our dedication and all of these things that we see in Scripture. We should be growing in those things. The Christian life is one of growth. And it's also one of mission. It's also one of mission. What we learn from Paul is that we are converted and we're commissioned. We're saved and we're sent out. That's what Jesus does. What is he, he saves Paul and he says, I'm sending you out, man. I'm sending you to the world to tell everybody about me. And Jesus does the same for us. That's why we reference places like Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 so often. Those are our commissioning verses. What does Jesus want us to do with our lives? He wants us to go and tell the world about him, to share the truth of Jesus, to share our Jesus story. Life with Christ is one of growth, and it's one of mission. All right, before we, we close up shop here, uh, two points of application that we can, we can learn from today, things that I want to leave you with before we close up. Uh, one, there is power in your story. There's power in your story. 
so share it. There's power in your story, so share it. Tell the world your Jesus story. And look, here's the deal. The power in your story, the power of your story is not in your circumstances. It's not in how you got saved, how you put your faith in Jesus. It's not in your circumstances. The power is also not in your presentation. It's not like, man, I got I to gotta do this perfectly or else it's not going to work. That's not, that's not what we're saying. The power in your story is not in your circumstances, and it's not in your presentation. It's in the one who saves you. The power is in Jesus. He's the hero of this story, right? It's all about him. And what the Bible tells us is, is he, he uses our story to change other people's stories. That's what Jesus does. When we share our story, even if it's unclear, even if we're fumbling over our words, even if we feel like, man, it's boring and I can share it in 30 seconds, like even if we think that, Jesus still uses that to change people's lives forever. That's awesome, y'all. That's amazing. That should get us excited to share our story. That just by simply telling people about Jesus and what he's done for us, speaking from our experience, speaking from what we've seen and what we know to be true, Jesus uses that to radically change people's lives forever. There is power in our story. The second thing that we can learn from this and that we can apply is, is that we are to trust God with the results. We're to trust God with the results. Look, there's no conversions in Acts 25 and Acts 26, none that we know of at least, right? We, we leave Acts 26 with Festus and Bernice and Agrippa, all of them without putting their faith in Jesus, Right? In fact, it's been a while since we've seen some conversions in Acts. Remember, I mean, back in those early days, in those early chapters where we were reading about the church and growth, it was constantly like, man, the, the word went out and it grew rapidly. And there's many who believed, many put their faith in Jesus. It was growing and growing and growing. Like, we've seen that a lot. It's been a while since we've seen that. We have to go all the way back to Acts chapter 19 when Paul was in Ephesus to where we see the word expanding and, and a lot of growth and conversions happening. But what we learn from this moment is that Paul was a faithful witness and he was a successful witness, not because people were saved, but because he shared. He shared. That's our job. That's our role. That's what God has called us to. We are to share and trust him with the results. Our job is to share. God's job is to save. Our job is to share. God's job is to save. So we share we speak the truth, we share what we know, what we've, what we've experienced, we share our Jesus story, and we trust him with the results. We trust him with the results. He's the God of salvation. All we have to do is share. So if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in him for salvation, we all have a Jesus story. Every single one of us has a Jesus story. So when the opportunity opens, when God opens that door, to share. Let's share. And again, all we got to do is share what we've seen, what we know. We share who we were before Jesus, how Jesus changed our lives, and what our lives look like now with Jesus. That's all we're called to do. And we trust God with the results. There's power in our story, and God wants to use your story to change other people's stories. He wants to do that. All we have to do is willingly step into those moments and share. Let's do that, church. Let's trust him and share our story with the world. In a moment, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up just like we do every Sunday. We're going to enter into this time of communion. And like we say every week, this is a time for the believers in the room, for those of us, as we've been talking about, that have trusted in Jesus, that, that have a Jesus story. So church, I want to encourage you to take some time. Maybe today has just been a good reminder of the gospel, a good reminder of what Jesus has done in your life. And maybe you just need to sit for a moment and just worship him and just thank him. Just give him gratitude and praise and honor because of what he's done in your life. Or maybe we, we've been maybe a little convicted about, about needing to share our story more. Well, again, that's the beauty of the gospel is 
there's, there's always a chance to repent and come back to Jesus, right? To say, Jesus, I know that I didn't do this, but Lord, would you, would you continue to give me opportunities? Would you give me strength to walk in obedience to you? Maybe we just need to spend a few moments in prayer. So just spend some time, take the time that you need to prepare your hearts. And you can go to either side of the room on either table here. We take the bread, we take the cup, we eat and we drink and we, we celebrate and we worship what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate his salvation, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that because of that, we have been forgiven, we have been set free, we have been made new. For those of you here that maybe haven't put your faith in Jesus, maybe you have been kicking against the goats, maybe you feel that pull from the spirit, you're like, nah, I can't do it. Nah, I can't do it. My prayer for you is that you would stop doing that today. Stop and walk into the call of Jesus. Obey the vision just like Paul did. Step into that calling from the Lord. Put your faith and your trust in him. Have your life changed forever by Jesus. And again, all we have to do, all the Bible says we do, is we put our faith and our trust in him. We say, okay, God, I'm done living for myself. I'm done trying to find and earn salvation on my own. I'm trusting in you for that. That's all we do. So if you're here and you want to do that, I'll be in the back afterwards. I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to help you with that. I'd love to answer any questions. I'd love to pray with you about that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your truth here in this passage. Lord, I thank you for the example that we see from Paul. Lord, I thank you that you radically changed Paul's life on that road to Damascus, and that has had far-reaching consequences, Lord, like you have done so much just from that single moment. Lord, you are incredible. You, you are amazing. You are awesome, Lord. So we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you don't leave us as enemies. You don't leave us in our sin, Lord, but you provide a way out through your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, defeating hell, sin, and the devil, Lord. We, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the many blessings you've given us, Lord. We walk faithfully with you. Lord, would we walk in those works worthy of repentance that you have for us, Lord? So we thank you, we love you, we give you all the praise and glory and honor today. In your name we pray, amen.